Hello, and welcome to the 39th episode of Across the Isle. I'm Philip Teal, and I'm joined in the studio by more people than usual. Ron, our producer, is in place, and across the desk, as always, is my friend and spiritual consultant, Carla Donnelly. Hi, Carla. Hello. And very prestigiously, we welcome as guest host... Bon vivant, arts advocate, homosexualist, writer, community radio broadcaster, Doctor Who fan, Richard Watts. Why, hello. That is one of my favourite Twitter handles (laughs) or bios. It's better than, what is it, like, dad, CEO. (laughs) They are some strong nouns. I may have done a little bit of counting as to the word limit to find out (laughs) what exactly I could squeeze in. It is so good to have you here. And Carla, I'm wondering how you got this doyen of arts criticism to sit down with us. Oh, well, I read, um, what is it, How to Influence People. Excellent, excellent. And it worked. (laughs) How is the winning friends part going? Not not very good. (laughs) Richard is with us for the whole episode in its usual two-act structure. So we'll discuss both of this month's productions with us. And they are Dibbocks by Samara Hirsch at TheatreWorks, presented by Chambermaid. And after intermission, it's Nakia Louis' Blackie Blackie Brown, directed by Declan Green at Malthouse Theatre. Turn up the volume. But, Carla, let's begin. What is Dibbocks? <laughs> I only just realised that's why I'm your spiritual advisor. Always. (laughs) You're so (laughs) forward-thinking. Okay, Dibbox is sort of an interpretation or a reimagining of a traditional Hebrew, Yiddish, Jewish play. Uh, This play was um, conceived in the like the early 20th century. It's very famous, very um, well-performed, and this is Samara Hirsch's interpretation of the story from the program it says in yiddish mythology dibbocks are the unresolved souls who seek to find form through living bodies dibbocks is a new work from chambermaid conceived and directed by samara hirsch that invokes the many ways that the dead inhabit female bodies through language voice memory and desire so the play itself is carved up into three sections the first section is sort of more of a literal interpretation of the play. There's there's talking, there's text, there's language. There's a voiceover telling the story of a woman who has lost her lover, who has died uh, when he has found out that she's about to be married. And then the second part is detailing a mikvah, which is a Jewish women's bathing ceremony that I didn't know until I researched this, but it's apparently they're supposed to do it after they've menstruated. So it's celebrating death, cleansing for new life. That's really fascinating. And the third part was sort of an amalgamation, it seemed, of a Jewish funeral process. So preparing the body for burial and also the ceremony. That's kind of what I elucidated out of the essentially non-verbal esoteric performance. What did you guys think? Feel, see, experience? I found this a fascinating work, partially because it's a little bit outside of my traditional comfort zone. I see a lot of contemporary dance, I see a lot of circus, I see a lot of text-based theatre. But to see what was effectively, I guess you'd call it, 
an experimental opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's w- an interesting way to describe it. Yeah, be- Chambermaid as a company were initially uh, and earlier called Chambermaid Opera, and they've kind of mutated along the way to be a company who present new music works. Uh, they will often do very intimate kind of chamber-style works, literally in people's uh, in people's lounge rooms or homes. Um, and for me, this was. Uh, and audacious occasionally, I will admit, challenging work as mm. well, uh, because it was effectively a textless piece of contemporary opera channeling this ancient uh, Yiddish myth. And I thought the design was exquisite. It did admittedly feel to me like a work where I was sitting outside of it rather than caught up within it. But nonetheless, I found it a beautiful piece of work. Mm. And fascinating in a way to think about inside and outside, Mm. because that was deliberate. The backs were turned, right? There was this incredible group of women who begin the performance by leaving the space, later return to the space to continue that sort of inward focus with their backs turned to us. There was a strong... We need to say that they were singing, they're the chorus, yeah. There was a strong sense of um, congregation and ritual practice, and we were on the outside of that in a fascinating way. But in terms of opera, I found the music wonderful and quite abstract. Like, it's, it's good for me to re-encounter this company and be reminded that Melbourne has in it music making that is quite avant-garde, atonal, experimental, and effective. I mean, the play or the work ultimately ends with with noise you know the human body and the voice making ritual noise it was quite deafening Mm. at the very end and so I think people were fully experiencing what sound can do and I guess that that's why I love opera as a form so much and this was taking that to a very raw sort of place. That's really interesting I love this whole idea of being outside because it it really did feel like witnessing secret women's business to me <laughs> like even though it was incorporating you know men burying men and Samara Hirsch has talked about how she has deliberately reoriented this as a story to center women um, and the women's experience of these um, rituals even though we were spectators I did and it was a culture that is completely alien to me I had no understanding of a lot of these rituals I felt a a sense of community Mm. there. And I think, you know, like a lot of the, most of the um, choir, it seems, are part of the Jewish community. I'm assuming a lot of the people in the audience were also part of the Jewish community. But it it did feel, and maybe it is that wailing, Mm -hmm. the music, but there was that kind of sense of closure at the end of grief and maybe even just tonally, picking into something primal inside of me that made me understand exactly what was going on. Mm-hmm. One of the things that resonated for me, the, the, this is an adaptation in some ways or a, or a referencing or reframing of a, a work by a, a folklorist, um, <laughs> uh, originally written as a play, The Dybbuk or Between Two Worlds, which I think was originally staged in Melbourne probably in the 50s and then restaged uh, in uh, by Barry Kosky, I think, in the... Early in, 90s. In, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's got this long tradition, but that subtitle of Between 
two worlds was literally evoked by mm-hmm. the design of the work. And Carla, as you say, the fact that we had this uh, chorus of people singing with their backs to us, they were literally creating a situation where we were observing. We were outside watching this internal drama playing out. And uh, this is perhaps a, a good point to reference the the design by Paul Jackson, who I know primarily as a lighting designer, but he created wow. this kind of internal cube, effectively, mm-hmm. out of strips of plastic, rather like the, the strips that, I don't know, might hang over the door of a country butcher's shop to keep mm-hmm. the flies out, mm-hmm. for example. But the lighting then reflected in miniature what was happening within that in each individual strip. So you had this strange abstracted view of of bathing and washing and the sense of ritual uh, and, and in particular that notion of the ritual uh, cleansing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you're having a – if you're referencing, I guess, that notion of being unclean once a month for a woman, then the, the ritual cleansing. So there was that element of it, but also the fact that the original myth of the Dibbuk is it's about a spirit that possesses people, the spirit of the dead, and my understanding of the, origin, of the original play is it's a young woman possessed by the spirit of her dead lover, mm. um, and she is rendered voiceless as part of that process. So the play is a conversation between uh, the possessing dead man's spirit through the the voiceless body of a woman and of the, the rabbi who's interrogating the spirit and perhaps casting it out. And I love the way that this work created that sense of ritual and the space and place in which that kind of ritual could, could take place and of transformation, but it focused on the female voice that mm-hmm. is silenced in the original story and it focused on that through musicians. We had a... What, uh, all the musicians were violin, clarinet, uh, and I think keyboard. So all female performers, female actors, and an all female choir. So this was a beautiful feminist rendering mm. uh, and recreation of a, of a ritual space, mm. but a ritual for the 21st century. Mm. The moment in the curtain call when the performers all bowed in four directions very solemnly was like getting, you know multiple hugs from your favourite grandmother. You know, there had been some sense of creating a welcome that was achieved through the whole process of the production. But I love that it's also problematizing all of this. You know, I like I like that on the one hand, this is Jewish ritual practice enacted, but very deliberately also queried, you know, and and uh, respected, but at the same time sort of reclaimed and questioned. And not just queried, but queered yeah. as well. <laughs> oh, that's true. That word always lingers at the heart of the other. <laughs> I love the design as well, and I loved that, I mean, it's it's in the round, so, and also everything is literally in stereo, the music and the performers. But that strip, that's like the cube, the plastic cube with the strips, and also having the singers and performers outside of that but sitting in front of us, it kind of created this sort of, you know, heaven, you know, bifurcation of the world, of the spiritual world and the the material plane. And also, like, I love those strips because you have this element of it keeping us out, but it was actually keeping water from flying out from the spa. But also that it strips, it's like it, it represents the membrane, that everything is 
passing in and out. There's not a sort of a totality to, you know, these planes. Everything is sort of moving around. So I thought the the set design in particular was absolutely inspired. And as well as being a membrane, it's uh, it's also dividing past and present as well. I mean, this is an evocation of a, a Yiddish culture, which was almost a, a Jewish culture, which was and language and ritual and myth, which was almost exterminated. So we we have this Im- literal embodiment through design, through voice, through presentation of of past uh, within the central cube uh, and present, the voices surrounding it, honouring it, mourning it mm-hmm. as well. So there were so many intelligent aspects of this work. It was a rigorously constructed, mm. beautifully kind of contemplative. It was a challenging and difficult work as well. I, mm. I will admit it was there was a but there was such intelligence to the way that this was made mm. that even while I was occasionally perhaps unmoved in a way that I had hoped to be caught up within it. And that's perhaps says more about my ignorance about some of the, the myths and tropes and stories that but were being explored. Some of it was so deliberate, the distancing. I mean, we had to watch them scrubbing stairs for minutes at a time, which is not welcoming at all. I mean, it's exploring something that is underexplored, to say the least, which is the labour of practice including religious practice. You know, you've got to vacuum the church. You've got to sort of hose <laughs> yeah. down the mosque. There's a lot of it that's unglamorous. <laughs> but you've- did you guys find it creepy? I found it super creepy. Well, the fact that the performers began with um, what looked like stocking masks over their faces to yeah. render them effectively featureless, features, yeah. So, which tapped into that notion of the, the other part of the Dibuk myth, which is as a horror story. This is a ghost story about possession. And those kind of opening images of faceless figures were genuinely disquieting and discomforting <laughs> yeah. and added to uh, by the, the choir singing because the, the human voice alone is a beautiful instrument to have a group of voices together. There was an otherworldliness to what they were presenting it to us, which I just found fascinating. Mm. And, yes, yeah, certainly disquieting and creepy as well. Yeah. I was worried about you, Carla. Me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, in our last episode, you spoke of your fear of puppets. It's just puppets. They weren't puppets. No, okay. I'm totally into being possessed. (laughs) (laughs) It's intermission. We need to refresh ourselves. We need to revive ourselves. We need to cleanse ourselves. (laughs) Bathwater cocktail, Richard. (laughs) I was thinking more a glass of bubbles. A glass of bubbles. Grabbing right up. Always. Oh, I've got my dream come true for these two brains. This is a subject that I've been wanting to discuss with a lot of people. Um, So in our uh, category that we were nominated for at the Podcast Awards, there's another podcast called Aussies in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And the host asks all of these Aussies, you know, um, sort of their theories as to why Australian actors are so popular overseas and you get a lot of responses that you think sort of add up where it's like, you know, they've, they've gone through the acid mines of, you know, television, neighbours, you know, like they're very experienced, mm. disciplined actors by the time they kind of spring out of the box. But Ben Mendelsohn had the most intriguing theory where he said that Australians as a culture are actually quite nonverbal as people. We express ourselves mm-hmm. non-verbally and that's, the, that's sort of what brings the magic of 
our expressionless or expressioned faces rather than, you know, sort of uh, our magnetism. What do you guys think? Well, women from Australia in Hollywood are often in films that ask them to be mysteriously silent and aloof. I'm thinking of our Nicole and our Kate. You know, there's just something a little bit statuesque and non-verbal about some of the roles they've been cast in. Does Jackie Weaver fit into that category? Jackie! (laughs) I can't think of her being silent that much, now that you mention her. What about Naomi in Mulholland Drive? Ethereal. Yeah, these sort of non-language-oriented Oh, I'm loving this build, yeah. Mm. Look, it's an intriguing idea, and I I haven't thought about it, I'll have to say. So I'm thinking about this. This is all going to be off the cuff, but (laughs) um, it's intriguing, though, because... The, that notion, certainly for male actors, are they tapping in then to that kind of stoic Australian mm-hmm. masculine cliche, mm-hmm. for example, and trying to embody that non-verbally everything that and everything that Australian men generally, and I'm, I am generalising now, let's face <laughs> it, but that notion of everything is bottled up and interior, and so kind of Australian men are this um, bubbling, uh, locked down. Uh, emotional volcano waiting to erupt because we've been trained as men to repress all of those emotions. Mm-hmm. So when an actor so is a given... a flicked eyebrow <laughs> is, you know, so meaningful. It, it, it's the equivalent like a of a cobra. shout or a scream. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So perhaps I'd, I'd, I'd have to look into that more carefully. Weren't and we most of the elves in Lord of the Rings? Oh, speaking oh, of eyebrows, surely. <laughs> Do not try to co-opt New Zealand actors as Australians. It's bad uh, enough that we co-opt as Galadriel, Galadriel went to MLC. <laughs> Okay, but I actually, I think that that is actually one half of the equation, Richard, but I also think the other half of the equation is, because even when we do talk, you know, it's that laconicism, I guess, would be the sort of mangling of the word. It's like, we say things without saying them, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's a very British, but we've kind of boiled it down to even as few words as possible. So when we talk, there's a sting in the tail, you know, like how other cultures can't really understand how like through inflection where the mate can be a threat or, yeah, <laughs> you know, nah, a, yeah. A, a, yeah, nah, yeah, right? Can say it's, you know, the 70% of what we say. But the flip side of that again, though, is the that colourful... Uh, the colourful kind of Australianisms that ha- were part of Australian culture and uh, an essential part of it and perhaps as we've been Americanized, have been have dropped out, but... I know your classic uh, ockerisms like, oh, Struth, I'm flat out like a lizard drinking. <laughs> or, um, I didn't come here to fuck spiders. <laughs> <laughs> or Keating, you know, who took it to the next mm-hmm. level, which is, you know, it's like being flogged with a wet newspaper. Mm-hmm. But that's like, that's like a. That's like, you know, a sonnet, <laughs> you yes. know, in one sentence. And inspired one of our great Australian musicals as well. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, it's something to think about. I've obviously had a lot more time to think about it, but. It was like one of those moments where you you Mm. stand still and the world spins around you. Like, I was just so blown away Mm. by this idea that, you know, we we communicate... I mean, all of us communicate non-verbally anyway, but Australians in particular, maybe it's not a non-verbal communication, but it is a... A less verbal communication. A less verbal communication or a distillation of communication Uh because 
we love to take the piss out of everything. And the point of taking the piss is, you know, the, it's the element of comedy, which is the element of surprise. You know, so it's about being able to pun, turn things around on a dime. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the fear behind it all. <laughs> what do you mean? I just think that Australians are so scared, especially culturally, internationally. I mean, this is more of a cliche than the stuff you've been saying. But, you know, the idea that any Australian who's made it globally in the United States just must be continuously afraid that it's all going to come crashing down. Like, they, we mm. don't deserve this. We're, we're, we're just convicts or... I literally had a conversation about this recently with Adam Wheeler, who's the new artistic director of Taz Dance, the, the Tasmanian dance company based in Launceston. After 17, almost 18 years of working on the mainland, he's taken up a job with Taz Dance and gone back to Launceston, the hometown he left at 18 or 19. Um, and he's been having these thoughts about, does going back home equal failure, mm-hmm. for example? Uh, and it doesn't have to, but often I think, and perhaps this is where the Australian actors come in, you go over to Tinseltown or you try and make it, you don't succeed, you come back to Australia. Coming back home doesn't have to mean that your dreams have failed. Mm -hmm. In some instances it may mean a scaling down of them, but perhaps it's also that you're really successful overseas, but you just want to come back home and work with people you know and love as well. So it's a loaded, that notion of uh, coming home to Australia returning, I suspect for actors is a really fraught thing that they Mm -hmm. have to negotiate, Mm -hmm. because everyone's like why aren't you still in Hollywood? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I highly recommend the podcast because they talk about all that stuff and that's actually like very interesting that that's what they choose to talk about as well because she's always like, do you still have a home at home? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, and we always try to come back as much as possible or we're looking to move back in five years. And so, they're saying that verbally, not non-verbally. Yeah. <laughs> they all revere coming back here to live. So, yeah, totally fascinating. So, okay, thanks, guys. But all of this talk has made me exhausted. So, <laughs> should we go to the bar? Would you like a th- you're thirsty? You need Another a drink. play. <laughs> Blackie Blackie Brown is our next production. And the program notes on a dig in the Australian outback, archaeologist Dr. Jacqueline Black unearths a mystical skull from a hidden mass grave. It talismanically transforms her into ass-kicking Indigenous superhero Blackie Blackie Brown. Her mission to track down every last descendant of the men who killed her ancestors and have her revenge. It ain't about forgiveness... It ain't about reconciliation. This is about Blackie Blackie Brown, the traditional owner of death. (laughs) (laughs) Best play title of all time. And this is just all Nikia Louie, right? The unstoppable Nikia Louie, the program continues. And Declan Green team up with Barkinji, Birigaba illustrator Emily Johnson and digital animation studio. Oh, yeah, wow. The result is a hilarious live action badass blaxploitation superhero comic book that will have you baying for blood. So problematic, so fascinating, so cathartic. But are we here for that? Intriguing I'm totally programming. Here for that. Of Every course, day. Well of course we are. <laughs> of course we are. But like Ash Flanders is the body, you know. I was just so relieved and intrigued by the casting of this show, the way that it was presented and performed. I need to sort of aim to be as coherent as possible here. But this is one of the most fascinating things I've seen, well, probably since Black Showgirls, 
you know, by Nakia Louie, right? She's a talent, absolutely oh a talent. God. And she just gets sharper and more incisive and and more provocative and clever with each work that she's doing. Completely. And hilarious with the character of Rebecca. I sharded. <laughs> I mean, she <laughs> can go low. She can go low when needed. But, yeah, Carla, how did you find this? I feel a thousand slash a million percent catered for by this material. Mm-hmm. Just want to say that. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what I want to see out of life, which is black women getting superhero revenge on colonizers, essentially murderers. But this was just so much more. I think the mixing of forms in this was so unique and new. And that is actually something that is incredibly difficult to do in the theatre in particular. It's a fucking action play, which Mm. I have never seen (laughs) before at the theatre. It mixes cartoons. It's kind of like, remember everyone, you know, that Beyonce clip. So like she's walking around interacting with cartoons. It's kind of like that for Mm -hmm. the listeners who haven't seen it. Uh, it's action, it's hilarious, it's exploitation. Elaine Crombie is the great-great-grandmother. <laughs> yes, Delara Williams <laughs> as Blackie Blackie Brown. It mixes 90s reference and black exploitation films all in one thing. And to go back to your first point, it is just wish fulfilment. I mean, this is a world in which Aboriginal women are in charge. It's a kind of alternative history or the creation of a possible moment, which is a relief which is exciting and is hyper-violent. Yeah, the only reconciliation they want is murder. I love it. I loved the fact that this production could take us from broad comedy Mm. to absolute tragedy, to the the point where a complete stranger in the theatre patted me on the shoulder and whispered, are you okay? Um. Um, Because I was sobbing during uh, one particular sequence, which I won't go into details about because if listeners haven't seen this, there may well be a chance in 2019 for them to see it again. Uh, But the fact that it could... pivot so quickly from broad comedy to heart-rending tragedy and then back again. We were in such safe and secure hands. And I think that's partially testament to the fact that uh, Nakia Louie, the playwright, and Declan Green, the director, have worked together for years. Mm-hmm. Nakia was the the dramaturg on The Sovereign Wife, mm-hmm. Sisters Grimm show, which was part of the the MTC Neon season quite a few years ago now. So they've known each other for years. They trust each other as artists and creators. Uh, And so there's there's a real sense of being in such safe hands with this work. And I love the way they took the the kind of the pop culture references of superhero comic Mm. books and gave that to us through the the animation on stage. They took those black exploitation cliches uh, and gave us this potent, political, savage, insightful work where you begin by laughing and shrieking, going, yes, more death, more bloodshed, more violence, kill the racists, kill the racists, and then you get to the point where you're going, ah, and she's now about to kill someone like me, a nice, white, middle-class Melbourneian who's totally like, oh, I live on Aboriginal land and kind of like, my ancestors probably did something really bad, oh, I have to die now. Well, Um, the very first voice was my voice. I mean, it was Ash Flanders getting home from a theatre show on the phone to his boyfriend slash husband that is me to his inner city and then gorgeously decorated apartment by, you know this was all the prologue it's mm. so sharp and so fierce and so targeted I loved it masochistically yeah that, that kind of like we're here to see some aboriginal <laughs> <theater>. <laughs> it just took a shit on everything it and in did. such 
an extraordinary way. The writing in this is so sharp. And I've seen a lot of Nakia Louise's work, but I finally watched her TV show on the ABC, which is about her vagina who comes to life, <laughs> right? And I'm like, I am a billion percent in with this woman. Mm-hmm. Whatever, Wherever she's going, I'm going to. Absolutely. So stunning. And so much credit to uh, Delara Williams, the performer. She mm. was uh, she, the she effectively stepped into the original STC season of this production uh, because the original actor was injured. She was off book in something like three days. Wow! Um, so there would have been so much technical I work know. to do with the blocking and exactly. And my understanding is she has something of a dance background, so she was just able to kind of go. Okay, physically, I need to be here for this scene, and then slide over to that part of the stage because the uh, the the animation requires me to be. So, yeah, coming off book in three days for any production is amazing. Uh, coming off book for something that is so intensely physical because the animation in this mm. is such an important part of the work. I loved the stage design because the stage design was uh, kind of simple and clean and allowed the animation to, to work so beautifully. But the, st- the, the set was essentially a sloping angled stage and uh, a, a white back wall, uh, which allowed objects to be opened and moved around and then the animation added to that. Mm-hmm. I saw it on opening night when unfortunately the computer crashed and oh, they no. had to pause the show for 20 minutes, uh, reboot everything and start again. That's the risk with a, a technologically heavy show like this. So we got an interval that wasn't planned, <laughs> but it didn't detract from the work. This was such a powerful, funny black comedy, mm. black B-L-A-K, mm. um, because it was very dark, very challenging, very provocative, but also its politics was, were razor sharp. This mm-hmm. was, I, I adored this work. Mm. Going back to the actor Delara Williams, she brought this real complexity and vulnerability to her performance in addition to everything else. She was totally adorable even before her transformation into a superhero. And when she is a superhero, she's problematizing with every line. I mean, she never fully embodies anything cool, calm, calculated, like a sort of Marvel figure. She's she's worried about her victims and has long conversations with some of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you know, questions in a hilarious way what she has to do and keeps getting pounded by Elaine Crombie as her great-great-grandmother, sort of popping up and reminding her of her mission. <laughs> I mean, I could just sort of remember moments from this play over and over again. But, I mean, I was there with a couple of my colleagues and it was just so much fun to sort of debrief and maintain the buzz of the production with them. The first thing I heard as we walked out of the theatre was somebody behind me saying, uh, so that was loud, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably the best adjective, but so complex and so refined. And exactly the kind of work that I want to see our main stage theatre companies Absolutely. doing. Yes, we more we need more Indigenous works, but... We've seen a really broad range of Indigenous stories to date, but I love the fact that this was such an adventurous and provocative work. It, it's not being constrained by what white people think Indigenous, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, First Nations theatre should be. Mm-hmm. This is something that's going, you've got cliches, we're going to blow them up in front of you. 
I, I just want to give a note to Declan Green, friend of the podcast, one half of Sisters Grimm, who is also an independent theatre company here, very queer, and Ash Flanders, who is the one of the main characters. Oh, he's, he's, he's all the main creative, characters, he's, yeah, yeah. apart from Delara. Delara. Yes, this is performed only by two people, obviously playing multiple characters at certain points. But Declan's direction, this is, he's becoming so accomplished. It's always kind of felt like something that he's reluctantly done in the past for friends or for productions that he's been you know, invested in. But this, in terms of the technical elements that came through for this production, for it to actually be successful and hilarious and so on point, it's an extraordinary achievement. Absolutely. And look, I'm just so delighted that often with co-productions between, say, Malthouse and Belvoir or STC, MTC, we get to see them in their raw form and then they go up to Sydney when they're, <laughs> they're, they're more polished. And here we had the opposite version. So this was a, a work that was so tight and sharp and incisive and clever, unlike, um, say, uh, Declan's... Uh, what oh, was it? Faggots. The ho- faggots or the yeah. homosexuals, which by the time it got to Griffin in Sydney, I think would have been much sharper and tighter. We got to see a, an early iteration of it where it wasn't quite firing. Mm, and also not helped by the fact that um, transferring from the Malthouse, big cavernous theatre space, up to Griffin, tiny, intimate mm. little thrust mm. stage we sometimes get the raw end of the deal here in mm. Melbourne. So this was a case where we got the the road-tested, tightened version of a show and, oh, my God, it was so good. <laughs> but on the opposite end of that spectrum, all of the uh, performers, uh, it, it had a lot of bad luck this run, so they, a lot of them were injured. <laughs> it's the new McBride. And And the uh, <laughs> final performance, apparently, it shut. No, there was a patron that got ill uh, and they had to clear the the theatre, and so they performed the last, the end of the play in the lobby. I heard that. I heard <laughs> about that, and I was full credit to uh, Ash and Delara for maintaining their focus and doing that. And even on the opening night, when they had to yeah. kind of stop, reset the play, uh, and start again. In fact, they had to do it twice. Uh, <laughs> so, Unreal. but they kept the focus. Uh, they they just kept the magic going. This really was a, a magical production. Mm. Uh, and it definitely deserved to be seen again. Coming soon. Richard. October. There's so much coming Festivals. up. Melbourne Festival is on, for example. So, uh, What are your hot tips? Well, I can absolutely say that Prize Fighter is not to be missed. I saw Prize Fighter, which will be on at North... Uh, Northcote Town Hall as part of Melbourne Festival. I love that Carla and I both just grabbed our pens. It's like, yep, okay, good. Next. next. (laughs) So I saw Prize Fighter at its original Brisbane Festival season at La Boite Theatre in Brisbane. And then I saw it and went, this is a beautiful, powerful, potent piece of work. It just needs another season to tighten it in the way that brand new Australian work all mm. work from internationally. We see international works when they've had multiple seasons yes, yeah. uh, and the scripts honed and tightened and polished. So, But Prize Fighter is a beautiful piece of work. It's intensely physical, wonderful design, great direction. There's been a little bit of recasting since I've seen it, so I'm really looking forward to this new production at Northcote Town Hall presented by uh, Darabin Speakeasy as part of Melbourne Festival. So that's absolutely at the top of my list to see. Mm. Um, I'm also looking forward coming up in October and November, um, another Brisbane production presented by the Danger Ensemble, who are a Brisbane independent theatre company, been making work in Brisbane for 10 years and have just got to that point. Brisbane is 
too small, can't support the company. They've relocated to Melbourne. What? Uh, part of that all my friends are leaving Brisbane trope. Uh, but uh, the Danger Ensemble are presenting their critically acclaimed work, The Hamlet Apocalypse. And that's going to be on at Theatre Works. And so that's definitely one to check out as well. I'm also really looking forward to another Queensland production. It's all about Queensland (laughs) at the moment. Again, part of Melbourne Festival. Uh, My name is Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy Banny's um, uh, work from Queensland Theatre, also a Brisbane Festival production. This is about multiple generations of his family uh, and talking about being traditional owners and a really heartfelt and apparently beautiful work. It was on at Sydney Festival, I think, earlier this year. Didn't get a chance to see it. That's coming to Melbourne as well. And finally, the other work... I've got my eye on, apart from everything that's going to be on at La Mama Theatre, disclaimer, I'm currently the volunteer chair of La Mama Theatre, so take what I say with a word of salt, but you must go and see everything at La Mama, everything, absolutely everything. Um, But uh, the MTC have programmed a work by New Zealand playwright Albert Betts, a work called Astro Man, set in Geelong in the 1980s, about a young Indigenous boy who's uh, a bit of a uh, a computer game whiz. Uh, And I love the notion of of A, revisiting the 80s because I grew up in it and it's kind of like, do I really want to go back there? Um, but this, the fact that this is a work by a Maori playwright from New Zealand but set in the 80s and giving us a young Indigenous lead character, the MTC of programming that. I'm, I saw at the National Playwriting Festival at the Malthouse two years ago some outstanding works from Aotearoa New Zealand. Really want to see more and this is an opportunity to do just that. It's had great reviews from New Zealand. Exciting. Let's go to all of those things all the time. The only thing I would add to that is Northcote Town Hall is having some, it's having a renaissance of amazing theatre programming. So if you know, you live Northside like most of us or, you know, you just sort of want to start dipping your toe in. Tickets are like 30 bucks. Nice. And they've always got something really interesting going on. So just get over to Northcote Town Hall and start watching a bit of independent theatre. And Beautiful. a bit of independent dance. And oh, yeah, they, yeah. There's a really strong programming team at, uh, at Northcote Town Hall, uh, supported by the city of Darabin. So uh, kudos to them. Mm. Hi, Bo, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, what do you have? I don't have anything because no, I'm like boring. That's a lot. Is it? That's a <laughs> lot. <laughs> we can just go on. And that is it for this month. Thank you so much for listening. You can contact us at us at acrossisle.com. On our Facebook page, Across Isle, or via Twitter at Across Isle. And excitingly, in the Instagram stories at Across Isle. Thank you to Mark Barridge and Ron Colleen from Shack West for our audio perfection. And thank you as always to the performers who are making the art that we value so dearly. Without you, we'd have to live with our structural revenge fantasies unresolved. (laughs) Richard, it has been a pleasure. My absolute pleasure. It's been a a delight to be in the studio with you both rather than having you whispering quietly in my ears. Thanks, Richard. And where are you off to tomorrow again? Uh, I'm uh, off to Karratha in WA tomorrow for a conference. Then I go up to Brisbane Festival about two weeks after that. Uh, And then I'm heading up uh, maybe a week or two after that to Lismore to see the latest work from Norpa. Listeners from Karratha, get in touch. (laughs) Thank you, listener, for listening. See you next month. Bye. Ciao.